Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today, the April 6th DevOps Lunch and Learn topic turned into a discussion of flow computing. Uh, James Urquhart, the author of the Flow uh, book, computing book, was able to join us and we literally had an impromptu flow lesson and discussion that was just amazing. Uh, definitely worth your time to listen all the way through because we really struggle with definition and concepts and how things work and um, apply it to real world situations. Uh, and we went long, so a extra bonus of time um, with James. And I think it's really interesting is instead of outsourcing an entire process, that maybe has some specialty that you do that's value add, but that the process itself is generally considered, you know, not 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 core to your business. Okay. Um, so HR and payroll and that kind of stuff, you know, could you outrail, you know, would would flow allow you to outsource smaller, more granular pieces of a process? So that you would own, you know, you basically own that, okay, this is how I want my payroll to work. But, you know, consolidation, calculation of the checks, calculation of the tax, all that stuff. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that or even run that software. But I, I do want to get, you know, when this is calculated, I want to get that back because I want to be able to, you know, uh, update some information in, in our financial systems a certain way or something like that. Um, so it's just that, you know, it's the same thing. It's sort of the functional programming idea, like turning business processes into a set of functional elements that can be chained together any way a business wants to do it. Um, so we'll see. Um, that's one of my more speculative thoughts, but I think if, if, if that happens, it creates the opportunity for what, you know, Simon Worley talked about the fact that he believes, I think he, the calculation was within the next like five, four or five years, that there be a business that makes a billion dollars off of one function, right? Using in, in the serverless world, there'll be a business that that's basically one function that makes a billion dollars. Um, and you know, I don't know that if that's necessarily hundred percent true, but you could see that somebody who really specializes in a set of functions that are useful for, say, the financial services industry or payroll, or you know, you could see ADP turning themselves into um, a, you know, a pay, pay by the consumption kind of company over time. And uh, paychecks is so bad. <laughs> it's hard to, hard to I, I, I like the way you're thinking about it. Oh. Adding more providers into the stream, make, make it, make me uh, wonder, you know, wonder perspective I, well I but that's the, that's the catch right the catch why, why it's a 10-year vision right is for sure that's the thing but what you trade off when you get this is what i've come to realize is what you trade off when you get composability okay. is you trade off that you now own more responsibility for the emergent behavior of this of the of the the flow as a whole right so so if you if you build something using piping in the Linux command line, you're ultimately responsible for how the script behaves that uses all the you know or the or the or the command line call or whatever behaves because you're stringing the stuff together. 
Um, and so, um, so you own more responsibility for the system, but you get better, lower risk, ideally, you get lower risk individual components to consume with more consistency and expected behavior, especially the more commodity the function is. And so, you know, the trade-off is instead of having tools that you need to use to debug at sort of the code function level, you now need more tools that let you debug at the systems behavior level. And that's really the shift that I think um, serverless is, I, I think serverless is already starting to force that, but I think it'll really force that um, at the application level, right? I mean, infrastructure, I don't think it changes infrastructure in that way. I think it, cha it definitely changes um, the way that you look at business functionality and data flow and moving from sort of a view of, okay, you know, what's the function stack that's being called and looking more at what's the system flow and the system behavior. Um, and that's can a set of tools. A question. Sure. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm here is the foil. Ultimately, the problem is state. And so state... <clears throat> You know, where the service people are full of shit, in my view, is they all say it's stateless, but it isn't. It's just a way of getting to a database. And whenever you stick states in a database, all of your nice functional abstractions kind of go by the wayside. Remember Lisp? I mean, Lisp was great and, fun and function and stuff, but the moment you start getting to stateful, functional mm -hmm. languages, it kind of gets hard, right? So, you know, serverless is just an, an analogy um, for as a service, okay? Big things exist already. Uh, Stripe, for example, is the first billion dollar as a service thing, which is, you might say. Um, but my God, it's stateful. Sure, so, no, but so... so you know, Simon needs to come at me and I'll take him on about this too. Um, you know, the whole thing is until you deal with state properly, it's hard, right? And there aren't that many stateless little compositional blocks that are easy to throw together. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think he qualified it by saying that it would be functional programming style function, right? I think no, he's talking more about the fact that there'll be a callable thing. And to your point, Stripe leans in that direction in a huge direction. Wait up, right? It's, it's a big step in stateful, that. right? Yeah, no, but they're all stateful. And, and okay, your, Salesforce is then the winner. Well, but it's not a single, okay, it's not it's a, a single function. Things. It's a it's big- A bunch of things backed up by a big fucking Oracle database. Database, right, right. Sure. And I, so, I, Simon, I, I'm just, I that's why I say I'm not sure I agree with, with Wardley because for, for the reasons that you're talking about, I think, I think it's a class of service yes. that's more valuable. I think the, the, the and, and what becomes more available is as we go from call response APIs to linking streams together. Yeah, that's, I, that's more the thing that changes, not the yeah, I like your analogy with them. Um, mm. Unix command line stuff. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the idea. But even those, even those things, right, um, you can build scripts in which yeah. some of those functions that you string together store state. Right. 
right? And then retrieve state from, I mean, how many scripts out there go look for a file and load the data out of right. a file in order to process it? I mean, I mean tons the pipe is just a file, right? <laughs> right. So, um, so there's no, there is no doubt that, um, that that's, that it, certainly I think anything to me that's a true stateless function is really glue, right? I mean, you can do a stateless function that takes data from one thing, does some simple transformation and sends it off to something else that becomes stateful again. Mm -hmm. um, but um, those are, those are transformation functions. But, but right. still, there's this I mean, transformation I... kind of stuff that works really well for stateless. But, but in terms of activity and consuming activity and interacting yeah. with things, for a number of reasons, almost certainly um, there's a stateful element that's yeah, involved, that, which is one of the reasons why I mentioned swim in almost every single conversation yeah, I have. Forget <laughs> swim. I think, I right? mean, almost every stateful versus stateless is kind of not the point. The point is flow, which I 100% agree with everything you've said. Um, and ultimately, there is state. We have to deal with it, right? There's no, no real escaping it. Um, and so I, I don't think it's you know, stateful versus stateless is a really valuable discussion in terms of value. Ultimately, people rely on state for just about every transaction. But, but the trend towards a flow-based architecture is absolutely spot on. I really, I mean, I'm a huge fan. I mean, the whole idea with flow is ultimately that we're passing state through that flow system. Or transforming. I mean, yeah. it's not just yes. you're not just taking from a, a a moving it through and getting a. You're, you're no. I mean, I what yeah, and, and and that's absolutely right. The question is, what happens as a, as a result of the reduction? And by the way, MapReduce is a perfect example of this, right? So you do a reduction in some sense. What happens to the original raw data? Where did it come from? What do you do with it? Did you lose it forever? That one always gets people on an edge. Yeah, I think I think for me the the thing that that's a, the real eye opener, fu you know, like fundamental truth to keep in mind when you think about flow is flow um, is you know activity is really a representation and action is something that changes state essentially, right? It changes some act some element of state even something that reports that something hasn't changed in a sense is a report that in a new time, a new state, right? At a new time, this other value remains the same. So, so that's great. But if you just move that, inf that state change information around and don't do anything with it, that's worthless. That's, that's just taking up network bandwidth for no good reason. So it really is, and this is a big part of the book, it really is the, the endpoints, the producers, the consumers, and the processing and queuing and s sources and sinks that are involved there that are the key to creating value out of all of this. And so absolutely, we're just passing state around. There's no doubt. That's exactly what, what flow is about, is about moving state around. However- trans Transformations of state, which is key. Well, I mean, you can have transformations. You can have a, you know, <laughs> it, um, what you do processing wise, either even before you put it in the stream or after you receive it from a stream. What you do with that data is where the value gets generated. So to your yeah. point, exactly like transformations or, uh, or 
Uh, another big one that isn't really a transformation, in my opinion, is, is when you use one signal to trigger another signal, right? Um, or you use a, or you wait for a group of signals to come in and you trigger a signal from that, right? So there's signal extension, there's transformation, there's um, uh, there's even things as simple as just visualization, just making sure that that you know, you know, over time, what's the graph look like for this series of data coming in? That's incredibly valuable, which is a form of transformation in a sense. But um, but I think that there's you know, that's, that's really the key point that comes out of the book. And my opinion, one of the biggest key points that comes out of the book is like, look, we can talk, the important thing is the inf interface and the protocol to make, to cheapening the cost of doing integrations this way, right? That's a critical thing. But if we only do that, that's not very valuable. So it won't happen. But if we do that against an infrastructure on the producer and consumer side, that's capable of doing interesting and valuable things at the scales required, then that change, that, pro that protocol and, and interface is unbelievably valuable, like economy changing, game changing value. I have some more ideas, but I'll, I'll just jump in. <laughs> I, have, I have notes, go ahead and say yours. I've, I've, I've okay. got, so I've I got think a snack of it. The, the thing that James doesn't, James doesn't realize how smart he is, that's okay. The real thing that came out of the book for me is this notion of over time. So in a traditional database world, what you're after is some representation of the truth as of now. What's now in a world that's changing fast, right? And so you want a representation both of the past up till now, and you want some notion of ability to look into the future, to analyze, to project, to do whatever, learn. And so flow builds into this notion of time and databases are timeless. And suddenly we have this notion of everything being over time. Okay, learning is over time, any analytical function is over time, but still, you know, um, this notion of time as a as a fundamental um, observational property or whatever. I mean, it's, it's of enormous value, right? And then staying in sync with the source of time. In other words, being in sync with your data sources. So if you respond automatically, you're having, you have a shot of being accurate. Seems to me to be important. I mean, are you trying to, and this is something I've tried to press on, uh, using time as an index for correlation and context? Yeah, but so a time series database will kind of do that for you. It's just some magic key, right? <laughs> it's like, well, hey, sort by. <laughs> but could you mean that's it? the problem. But it seems to me that you know, if, if I said to you, um, do you like blueberry muffins, right? You know the answer to that. And that's because over time you've learned that, okay. But, you know, we can project forward also from that. So this notion of over time carries forward in the sense that time is, it's a property of, of the function associated with the data. I, I'm really struggling. James will probably articulate this, I'm sure. But the, the, the 
the value of the thing that I'm trying to express, like, like we, whether or not you like ruby muffins, is fundamentally time-based. And so it seems that there are certain things like my bank account where you just care about the state. But for anything that's intimately involved with the real world and its evolution, wrapping time into the evolution of whatever you're observing or cal calculating is fundamental. And I'm struggling to find a way to articulate. No, I, maybe I can give an example, right? So um, the, the best example that I have, and I, I tell the story all the time, is when I was at Sosta, um, I, I started working on data products for them and, and sort of taking a lot of their analytics and figuring out how to package them into products. And one of the big things that we did was we had real user me measurements. So they had just acquired a company six months or so before I got there that basically collected, you know, used, um, I think it's called Boomerang from uh, Google. And they collect every piece of browser interaction data, every load time for every element on the page, you know, just detailed information about every single page interaction from every browser of every consumer of your website and pull all that data into uh, a, a large scale, you know, database. They, they uh, eventually, while I was there, switched over to Snowflake and it changed everything. And, um, and then they, with, basically within 10 seconds, one of the things they were able to do is not only just give you that data and graphs of that data, but also correlate it with other data that you may have potentially, right? So it used to, it's basically time series data looking at comparing times and being able to do things like overlay two graphs to say, hey, what's the relationship between these two pieces of data? The valuable thing that we found was retail companies at the time were running campaigns and they would collect the data into an Adobe system, usually, usually Adobe. Um, and then they would run big data jobs. They'd run MapReduce jobs that would take 24 hours to complete and see the result of the campaign 24 hours after the campaign ended. So the only thing they could do then is use that analytics to figure out next time we run this campaign, what can we do better? Okay, now some of those campaigns were Christmas campaigns. So basically once a year, <laughs> right, you're getting certain information back and deciding, okay, what can we do to change it? Which meant people did these small campaigns so they at least have some chance to iterate a little bit. So what we changed was, wow, well, you're getting all this browser data, you know navigation, so you can actually say, hey, which of these interactions and trails of interaction resulted in a, in a sale, right? Resulted in, in getting to a sale confirmation page, for instance, um, uh, known as conversion. Um, so uh, when, when we were able to overlay performance data and navigation data with with conversion data, with the, with the data that indicated that a conversion had occurred, all of a sudden they were able to see in real time, hey, what's going on with this campaign right now? Well, 10 seconds ago, but right now in their mind. And so they were able to discover, hey, we have a, you know, the Facebook um, button that lets me, you know, uh, indicate my love of this product on Facebook is actually taking too long to load. It's taking longer than we thought it would. Let's take it off the page for a while and see what happens and see if that changes conversion, right? And, you know, as, as most of you probably know, page load times actually has a massive effect on conversion. Uh, and Amazon had a thing where they said for every, um, I think it was, you know, every uh, millisecond or 10, every 10 milliseconds or something of page load time was like, 
like two and a half or three million dollars worth of revenue, right, annually. So it was a huge, huge deal. And so, um, so you look at that, and uh, and they were able to make changes to performance of page loads, but they also could change the campaign. They could blue green test two different ways of doing it while the campaign's in flight. That change to real time understanding and you know not looking at hey okay over this block of time necessarily what's going on but looking at right now what's the state what are the state changes telling me or the recent trends of state change telling me about the effectiveness of what I'm doing it was a complete game changer we started putting big giant screens up on the walls and we did it at both Home Depot and Lowe's we put these big giant screens up on the wall and in both cases the VP of marketing was down there within 48 hours saying how do I get my people in front of that screen how do I get some desk space over here for some of my people to monitor what's going on and so that to me is the big big difference right is it's not that doing large-scale analytics on a block of time is not valuable anymore or looking like, hey, people who do this buy this isn't valuable anymore. That, that kind of analytics is still hugely valuable. The difference is when, you, when time is of the essence in terms of how you respond to get better outcomes, the move from looking at the past to looking at right now is just fundamental. It's just a fundamental game changer. So I'm, like what I'm having a hard time tracking is we went from talking about time and data modeling to basically moving from batch to streaming architectures. So I, I understand streaming allows you to do real time analysis of the data analytics, but I thought you were talking about something totally different when you started talking about time, right? We, we In data modeling, there was always a concept of time, right? From a, a shipping record when it comes in, you know, what the attribute means to the person picking up may change to someone sorting it in the warehouse. Uh, the data may become more complete over time. So in like the example you just gave, if I'm streaming a live event, right, we'll have real-time stats, but those real-time stats may not be completely accurate. And, and we may run a batch job to true them up, right, once we can deal with data that came in late or other components to it. Um, that to me is just fundamentally shifting from batch to streaming. It's not a component of time. Okay, I think maybe the way to look at it, I, I think that's a very valid statement. I guess that the way that I would look at it is, um, uh, the because because to me fundamentally the, the the piece of state that matters most is is the state change that's represented at that moment in time, right? So. So to, to your extent, I don't think that's a, there's a huge difference. And maybe I'm missing what Simon was talking about a little bit. Um, however, I think so. Um, I think time as a coordinator, as opposed to the customer ID being a coordinator, or as opposed to the product ID or the order ID being a coordinator, time being the, co the primary coordinator with then those things being secondary, um, I, I do think is one of the things that, um, that is at play here, that, that suddenly understanding how to bring a bunch of pieces together um, around a certain time frame becomes much more interesting uh, to an organization when you can process it in real time. It's, it, the value of doing so goes down significantly when you have to do it significantly after that. So I'll leave it at that and let Simon talk. Well, my thought on real time is this. You can't 
see if your day doesn't have the resolution that's required. And if your data has a resolution greater than your ability to see, then you're doing something wrong. And so the notion of real time is kind of at the resolution of your data, right? So you should be able to see at the resolution of your data and you should be able to do it at huge scale. Let me give you a couple of examples of time relevance and geospatial, you know, um, next to or proximity, I'm within, um, I'm near. These are, or predicted to be within. These are important time and geospatial related quantities, uh, certainly in the real world, which is where I've been recently spending my time. Um, and they're fundamental to the value prop in that knowing near or uh, about to be a few seconds late isn't good enough. And so time and the value, timeliness is intimately linked with the, the value of the insight, right? Knowing proximity a bit late, yeah, who cares, right? It was ephemeral. And so <clears throat> if, if um, knowing things uh, uh, maybe knowing things in real time. When you say real time, it has to be at the resolution of your data. If, if that's a value to you, then there's no excuse to not do that. Does that make sense? Well, look, I've got like three sets of things here. I've got, um, <clears throat> we, we moved from batch to, to streaming like years ago. <laughs> Right, and there's like three kind of discrete use cases in this. I thought you were going down a different direction. You're talking about cool. um, data and time. Um, yeah. You know, so there are there are it's going from batch from from MapReduce to Spark, right? And and then there's still needs for MapReduce. So By the way, example, Spark is still batch, right? Let's just be clear. Spark is a batch engine, the and there are the databases from your Kafka all the way through your Spark, because the state has to live somewhere. Spark is just a way of organizing batch. So we, we, we move from a batch process that runs once a day to, to batch <laughs> process that run interveniently. However you want to say it, the point of it is, is, is doing real-time analysis of data is almost a given, right? That, that most businesses should be building systems that way. Yes. And then we, we confuse, what I think you can confuse in that then, some of the processing out of that may wind up in the time series database. Right, where we can overlay things and build different right. interesting things out of it. Yep. Um, but then, the way, so, uh, just a quick question there. Mm -hmm. um, relying on humans to see the correlations or things of interest seems to me fundamentally it's okay for now. But ultimately, you want to automate these things, right? So, sure. having something which says, oh, that is correlated to that, so I will. Right, and that's important. Um, is is key, and so being able to identify things which are correlated or whatever, there are various statistical things you might want to do on your data and, and, on the fly and, without humans seems to be key. Well, you're adding you're adding on the fly, which is that well, there's there's some old AI concepts that go down this piece that I think we've actually lost something in, in some of the, the current just pure linear regression stuff. 
Um, but I, I think that the point I was trying to get to is in, in, in the notion of like data modeling, we used to have a concept of, you know, there is, let's get the, the, the three-tiered view of it and the other piece. But we also had the notion that the data changes over time, right? It may become complete and data also has a lifespan. At some point in life, it's just no longer useful and you toss it. So I thought you were kind of going down that piece to it. And then we kind of morphed more into streaming architectures and time series and that mm -hmm. piece to it. But the other comment I'd make on that is I think the composability, which is exactly what we've been trying to build, right? I think the part about that is, I don't know that you're more responsible for the composition. I think those are things that can be represented as off the shelf compositions as well, mm. right? So someone else may take the time to go build, debug, give them flow through the system. And then you can simply apply that to your workload, right? Not, not everything needs to be a one-off. Oh, I think that's amazingly valuable. By the way, there are functional decompositions of many analytics and even learning functions which deal with boundless data in exactly that way. Yeah. I think those are key. And by the way, Lisp isn't dead. It's now called closure. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> and then Haskell too. I, I just saw as uh, before this call jumped up, I noticed that Fortran has made its way back into top 20 programming languages. Oh no. Not sure how that happened. I'm just waiting for Ada to make a rise again. Revamping yeah. unemployment systems. For, Fortran made its way back on top because of uh, perseverance. Uh, Fortran's always been the scientific analysis thing. So high performance compute and come back up and Fortran comes back up too. Amazing. It's, it's well designed for the area that it's uh, used for. Yeah, that's, that's what I read in, into it as well as scientists love it, <laughs> right? Engineers love it. So. Yeah, it's the constraints meet, match the, uh, the constraints of, of the um, of the discipline. The but um, John, I mean, Java is going down an increasingly functional path, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think everyone's kind of putting into this notion of functional coding. I'm not, I'm not sure how much of a fan of it I am, to be honest. It means that programs can be very terse and you can get amazingly powerful things quite easily. But if, if you're doing flow, I mean, to an extent that implies a degree of functional unit work, right? Where you're, you've got a modular series of actions and you've chained them together. Yep. I don't know that that implies functional, right? Does that, does it imply immutable data sets? That yeah, that's, well, I think that's, that would, that will be a debate to be had, I think, but, um, but, an event sent from uh, one party to another party likely will at least need some sort of data provenance record that makes the original state in, in some way immutable, right? So, uh, or at least represented. Um, I believe personally, and, and Simon, I'd love your thoughts on this too, but I believe personally that in fact, um, ideally the protocols that send events over the wire will protect the immutability of 
the the event itself that it's on that 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 the best model would be that the events themselves are immutable now then once it gets into processing what's immutable what's not is a completely different story but i do but anyway my my personal belief is that we are we are going to have signatures and and uh, and data provenance uh, capabilities hard, that are going right? to be necessary that will lock down a little bit about what what the sort the state was at the source um, when yeah. it was yeah the problem is you know there's this notion of provenance and how long do we keep even the provenance I mean you know can we keep all this data we just can't right so we have to form some stateful representation of the past learn from it or whatever. And then make sure that it's authenticated in some way. That is, that we believe that that record is built from verifiable records of the past, even though we can't keep the past. That's hard. I don't know how to get there. You're you're bringing up something that I wanted to challenge uh, a little while ago, which is the idea of flow and time series of data. When when I think of flow. From, from the perspectives, and I'm, I'm not, you know, not going to claim the expertise, but I'm, I'm looking at putting, you know, data in, trigger something, passing it through a system, that data transforms. I don't care about the, the time series of that information or what it was in the last step or any, like, I get it, I deal with it, I hand it down to the next thing. And the, the idea of keeping any History on it's useful from an audit perspective, but it's not necessarily useful from um, the systems perspective, right? I'm, right? I'm literally transforming as I go. I might, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the way we deal with infrastructure, which right. after this call, I'm thinking it's more, much more flow oriented than so, I thought. I, I was hoping to- Simon, while you, about I want to bring up an image while you talk, because <laughs> I, I have an image that might help a little bit with uh, answering this. No, go ahead. I, sure I agree permission. with you 100%, Rob. I mean, in our largest customer, we are dealing with four petabytes per day. It's 10 gigabytes per second sustained. It's just more than you could even get to hard disk. You know, it's just shitloads of data. But and, but I'm not even sure you, you, you want it. It's sort of right, where I don't want it. It's, it's of no value. So, or maybe this, the... Maybe what we're trying to do is find value in increasingly short amounts of time, like am I near you or you know, do I move away? And is there value in that? And so there's no point in storing old data because it's ephemerally useful. And so as our data collection abilities improve, we have to change the way in which we um, deal with data as a fundamental thing, right? Are we interested in all the bits of information about the world all the time? And do we want to store it forever? No, we don't. Let well, me, let me, sorry, Jake. real quick, uh, Simon. So when, when I first mentioned um, index using time as an index, clearly yeah. it, was, it was to be used across different quote unquote dimensions, right? Using yeah. that as an index to then have multi-dimensional queries on top. Uh, what you are talking about, the value of data, how it vanishes. Um, I, I try to use the analogy of um, data half-life, how it disintegrates yeah, fast. that's great. So, yeah. 
So using the same, it's, you know, there are certain systems that actually do something very similar, right? So rather than talking about provenancing, we can start talking about checkpointing. So if you have a very high throughput, very high analytical engine on ingesting streaming data, I can run compute on that based on checkpointed summary data, right? But yep. then after say, you know, six seconds, eight seconds, the real-time ingest of that data, that becomes a part because I've already done some computation on summary data on it. Yep. That yep. becomes a part of, you know, low tier data. And now I'm still the most aggressive resources I'm still putting to ingesting streaming data, running so, computation on summary data. And if you want to keep it for archival sake, fine, keep it. But yeah. So here's here's the thing though, to consider, right? So the, the, the core thesis of, of flow. So for event-driven architectures within a company, I think you're absolutely right. What I question, and this is ignorance more so than having a, an alternative belief, is when you go across organization boundaries, right? When you have arbitrary consumers that may be consuming that data from your stream, um, can you do that? without having some sort of provenance and some sort of representation that says, in fact, that the data that's being consumed was the data that was intended um, to and, be sent from the source, and hard, right? And, and there is security and payment issues and- God Yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's all of that too, right? And, and but I think, um, so anyway, before I hog the screen too long with this, so this, um, this is another thing that I think is, that I, I found very, very important when I got to it. And this was, uh, Clemens Vasters at uh, Microsoft, who, who's the chief architect of all of their different messaging and eventing services, um, sort of pointed me to this concept. And, and the idea that, in fact, there are different types of streams and different types of desires to consume from the stream. Um, and in fact, I would slightly extend this and rearrange this a little bit today. I've got a couple of other different aspects. Um, I would actually separate out the, the statefuls um, stuff from the event router stuff. I, I've got a couple of ways of looking at that as well. But, um, but it's one, one thing to realize is it's not all individual events, right? It's not every use case is not, hey, I just want to consume the next event that comes down the line and do something with it. So sometimes time series matters. It matters that if I'm collecting a series event that I wanna remember the order that those events were received. Um, uh, and also there are, it's not always that I wanna take a single action from each event that comes in. There are times when that action either triggers the start of a workflow in which that data that came in with that event is important as I move through that workflow and, and making decisions about what happens. And there are times when, um, uh, and, and there are times also it, like what um, SWIM does in which um, that state needs to update a digital twin to represent the, the, the correctly represent for the, that twin and signal out to the other related um, connected nodes in the graph um, that that state changes occurred and, and keep things accurate in terms of the current state of the environment. Um, so. So it's not so simple as sort of saying, oh, you know, it's, 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 we're just consuming individual events um, and that time doesn't matter in that case because it's true, it, it's, not, it's not as important in that case. Um, but, uh, but, it's, uh, but it's also not as, I mean, it's not 
Kafka simple, right? It's not, hey, everything is a log and you just consume off the log no matter what. Um, there are situations where, where that is either overkill or, um, or not even the appropriate solution. As in, if you compare Kafka and Swim, it's a great example, right? There, there are good solutions for different situations in the sense. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop sharing my screen, but I thought I'd share that because I think this needs revision a little bit from what we're, you know, we're I mean, it's good enough where it started, but it, there's more that I can do with this today, knowing what I know. But I think there's a decision tree that you go down based on how you want to consume events. And there's a decision tree for the producer <laughs> and there's a decision tree for the consumer as well, right? The consumer may decide so, to, to handle a stream in a different way than the producer Generated. This is, yeah, this is very useful. Um, one thing about events versus traditional storage database tech, you know, events are not transactions. Right. Right. And we sh any idea that we should treat them like that is just silly. For, for example, you could partition, you know, your app could be partitioned and so on. What do you do with events that are you know, on the other side of a partition. You can't store them, even though Kafka would tell you you can. Um, it's problematic. Um, what you really want to know is the current state of the world when you get reconnected, right? <laughs> and so viewing events as transactions is the wrong approach. So that means all the traditional transactional machinery, acid and eventually consistency and all that stuff, is possibly the wrong way to think about how we evolve stateful representations of what these events mean, right? Um, so the one thing I think that's important about the difference between traditional transactional systems like my bank account and event-based systems is that the, there are two things that matter. One is that they aren't transactions. And so we can move the world forward faster if we don't have the complexity of dealing with, you know, acid and all that. And two, time is fundamental. That is, you know, if something is sending you event, it's telling you about a change now. And so would you rather know about all the events that you are cut off from or you missed, or would you rather know about its state now, right? And what you've managed to learn or, or whatever. And so it seems to me there's, there are two different kinds of consumption um, patterns for state or event changes, right? It's kind of traditional things which match database text very well. And just events which is, massive instrumentation of everything um we're knowing about the current state of things rather than every little event change in the past maybe may not be useful or at least the current state is more useful than things you've dropped i mean it, but if you're in a system that's actively going through an event sequence of an events a flow the intermediate states are only useful to the the participants in the flow, and even only then the, the connected components, right? None of that stuff matters to anybody external to that flow, I think. Yes. And that's, I guess- You're right. I agree. Well, um, James, James well it doesn't that. matter until it does. So especially yeah. in 
the situation with like Simon and whatnot. You have all these sensors and stuff and all this stuff is transitional and housekeeping and whatnot. And it doesn't matter to anybody except for the operators of it until something weird happens and you either have the information that goes with it or you don't. If you have the information, everybody goes, wow. If you don't, it's like, okay, we need to instrument something else. <laughs> yeah. And so when you ask the question, do you have the information? It's not, do you have all the original data? It's like when I ask, right. you, do you like blueberry muffins, you cannot remember all the blueberry muffins you have eaten. Okay, you literally cannot, but you still know an answer, which is, yeah, I like them. I think troubleshooting and debugging, though, this goes back to, I was just talking with somebody else about this um, earlier, but, uh, and something that we said very early in this conversation, right, which is, that's when you get to um, rather need, rather than needing sort of the traditional sort of functional step through idea of debugging, what you begin to need to have is a, a systemic um, view of the system in a way of troubleshooting what's happening in terms of system behavior um, and where you can turn on the need for an agent to track what it's doing for a period of time or what it's receiving for a period of time, right? Um, but but ultimately, what you need to be able to see is more than just that agent or just that stream and to be able to debug at that level, because it could be something uh, that's being affected by um, by something in broader in the system than that. So um, uh, I agree with you. It's, it's one of those things where you need the data when you need it. Some people will say, hey, that means we should store everything that comes over the wire nature doesn't allow that <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a you know it's a long you know it's a long story but but essentially um you know it, it sosta would store every piece of information but ultimately they admitted that after about three weeks the data has timed out so much that it might as well get stored into a historical database that if somebody wants to do large-scale um data analytics on that later they can go get that data to do that with more of a map reduce approach or whatever um, but it, but the real-time data processing value is is more or less gone. And um, and I think in a lot of ways that um, for troubleshooting, the ability to sort of turn on and say, okay, look, we need to be very aware of every event that's coming and understand what's going on and, and have tools that allow us to see that in human time and work with it in human time, it's a big deal. But at the same time, I think um, I think even that data times out over time and you're almost better with um, sort of a historical look uh, at even the aggregate data that, that or, the, or the calculated data that um, checkpoint data, that kind of stuff that, that these guys are talking about um, because uh, um, it, it really becomes not, even if you can store the data at a cost-effective way, processing that data in a timely fashion and finding the signal that you're looking for in the noise becomes incredibly expensive. Now, the other thing real quickly too, yeah. um, is that um, the, there's a few people out there, William Luth is one that stands out for me that are, are making a big noise right now about the problems with this idea of collect every single piece of data because you don't know the unknowns, right? And not thinking intentionally about the signals that your systems could send um, and having systems thinking kind of approach to how you design your system to be operatable and debuggable and manageable 
and having an intentional signals in the system to help you understand how the system's behaving. Um, I'm increasingly buying into that, that the first order is having, if you want a debuggable system, you should have a system that has a bunch of first order capability that, that you can use to very quickly ascertain what's going on, where problems may be happening um, that are very intentional, but that the ability to fall back to just capture everything and let me sift through it, um, it has to be there just in case those signals fail, right? Just in case you, you did not think of a use case well, but the known unknowns are extremely important, <laughs> all right? The Thanks known unknowns are help, extremely mate. important. Yes. Yeah, I, it's oh, interesting because yeah. what you're when <laughs> I haven't thought of what we do particularly as a flow system, although we call it workflow and it's very flow oriented. It's I mean we're all infrastructure, so you y'all are talking about usually I think of apps and triggers that are user generated, but from our perspective, and 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 we're a little bit different. Systems don't you don't have a lot of information at the start. You run a flow, it collects data as it goes, hands off modular to module, and then it delivers a working system at the end in a, in a final state. And most people don't care about the intermediate stuff unless something's busted. Um, yeah, but that's, uh, that's so, what I think you're going to hear. It, Rob, even so, you to your, your point, yeah. Did you ever look at Pizalia? Pizalia? No, what? It's, it's a database that came out of AWS related to running, I think, think um, um, their elastic block store. Okay. What's it and called again? Pyzalia, P-H-Y-S-A-L-I-A. Okay. And I know the I know the architect, he's a South African, funnily enough. Um, and he lives up here in Seattle. So I can put you in touch if you want. But there was an NSCI paper on it. And the benefit is? Um, millions of tiny databases. Ah, uh, OK. Millions of tiny databases? Yeah. In other words, they couldn't reliably, what they had to do was ensure the state was right. That is, you uh -huh. were collected to your volumes and so on. But they couldn't rely on. Um, reachability as a fundamental need, right? Can you get to the database, the configuration database of record? And they really couldn't when you were booting up your system and a whole bunch of other things. Okay. So it's pretty cool. Hmm. I'll take a look. That sounds, that sounds good. Open source. I, I think that one of the big challenges when I think about how, you know, when we look at systems in flow, especially configuration provisioning is we don't assume single source of truth as a, as a caveat, which I think is actually a, a, and James, this might be a really interesting component of a flow system, is it has, you have the ability to have external influence that when, when you start a flow, you don't assume that you have the information you need to complete the flow or that you're only, that you're only gonna provide the information that's necessary to complete the flow. Um, yeah, like, does that make it's we no, it, things it like does. TCP interactions, DNS interactions, you've got provisioning operations where somebody does something that's completely outside of you, or you can't determine a piece of information like a certificate or a password. Yeah, that, until that's it, great, so, actually. So, I think that's cool. But I think, I think, Rob, I, the one slight change I'll make is 
I, I don't think somebody sits down and figures out and intentionally builds the entire flow, <laughs> right? I think one of the things that's missing a little bit there is if we're talking about composing across organization boundaries okay. and connecting streams of activity to generate new streams of activity potentially, and those may transfer organization boundaries again, right? Um, we have a graph that spans many organizations. Um, then the flow itself won't actually necessarily be intentionally designed. The flow will evolve out of the way people connect together um, the use of the state for their various purposes within that graph. I'll give you a real example. <clears throat> now we, we are deployed in a bunch of cities in the US where we do per intersection real-time prediction of two minutes ahead of how the state of the intersection will evolve. Okay, and each intersection, the digital twin of it, is predicting from its own state plus its neighbors. Okay, and that information is streamed. So every single intersection streams its predictions for its own state. Um, so in Vegas, there are about 5,000 independent running DNNs, little ones. Um, each of which is predicting two minutes ahead. And that streams directly into Uber's Kafka. Okay. So the flow... Interesting. Okay. So Uber is not interested in voltage shift on individual lights. <laughs> and my God, it's ghastly. Um, but they are interested in accurate predictions of the state of every intersection in a city, say, right? and then they can route their vehicles better. That's a concrete inter-organizational, it's the first one I know of, of in my small world, uh, of right. inter-organization use of flow. And this is just an API, which you can just subscribe to, and the predictions will be delivered to you as a stream predictions. I guess what's making this, um, it just sounds like, I mean, there's the inherent benefits of adopting, you know, message or event-based architectures to go into it. Um, yeah, there, there's the, the challenges that go with that, with CAP theorem. There is different design criteria for solving different real-world correlations. And it's, it, this conversation seems like we've just jumbled these all together. You know, the data that's oh. flowing through it, the architecture. Ah. To be, to yeah, be, hold great. on, hold on, Simon. So to be Thank fair, you, to be uh, fair, the <laughs> core of the argument, John, and you're, you're absolutely right. The core of the flow story isn't necessarily about all the different forms of processing. It's really about that interface and protocol that allows you to subscribe to a stream and, you know, with minimal amount of programming required to do so, right? The, the metadata formats understood, the interfaces to subscribe, it's probably gonna be hopeless to subscribe, but there's no guarantee about that, but almost certainly. Um, so the interfaces to subscribe or to publish, the, uh, the protocols for carrying the metadata and encapsulating the payload, and even within industries or within specific connections, the payload formats becoming a, a standard. Um, enabling basically to, you know, the lowering the cost of integration significantly. That's the core of what the flow argument is. So yes, there are a million problems in the producer side and the consumer side and all the processing, all the queuing, all the sinks and the sources, a billion problems out there that, are, that aren't solved by the idea of flow. Uh, 
they just don't that that's not the purpose of, of what the the core idea of flow is but being able to send that information across the wire in a way that it's understood to be an event and understood in context um, of what it is as an event. Uh, that is really the, the, the heart of the value proposition. And then there's a lot of things about the current state of EDA that are the groundwork, the foundation on which that future will be successful. Okay, so, so you're, you're trying to standardize the interfaces, the metadata and the payloads around <clears throat> Is, is yeah, that, you know, I'd start with the first two, and then the third will happen. Sorry, I muted so myself. I, think, uh, I don't think you can come up with a standard payload uh, format that everybody can understand, right? I, I think that's impossible. I think that's been proven. Semantic Web and a number of other places proves that you just can't get to that point. It's, it's going to be domain specific. But um, the other, I, I do think things like cloud events from CNCF combined with um, a yet to be determined standard around um, a, a publish and subscribe uh, interface um, are the going to- The Kafka folks would have you believe it's Apache Arrow, but there's MQTT, there's paragraphs, whatever. There, but by the way, none of these is really hard. Yeah, right. yeah. That's, I mean, that's the thing about it is it could be, it could be multiple with, um, you know, what Cloud Events has done is they've just bound the metadata standard in a way that they've yeah. defined the metadata standard in a way that it can be mapped to the the um, transport protocol um, uh, as needed, right? So there's there's a binding to MQTT, there's a binding to AMQP, there's a binding to HTTP. Um, there are a number of other um, related. There's a there's a binding for um, for protobuf. There's you know there's and so there's a number of ways to take that standard data set in the standard formats in which the data is represented and then map it to a, a, a way of packaging up uh, the event for transport over a network. Um, and so, you know, but that's the, but for sure, that's what it, what it really comes down to um, is, you know, what can we do to really significantly lower the cost of subscribing to a stream since that's becoming a well understood uh, almost commodity action uh, already today. Question, John, you, you were talking about Captherm. I mean, do you think of events as being transactions? I, I think that when you start moving to, I, I, I don't, I think that you have, we, we keep talking about data and we talk about um, the topics come up several times, right? And, and when I bring that up, it's just, it, it's the truth of that theorem is, you know, pick any two, I can't have all three. Or you could just have a different one. So, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot and I happily send you whatever I've been thinking, but, but the idea is that cap is not a useful abstraction. I mean, it just isn't. In what sense? So, for a bunch of reasons. Okay, so for a start, CAP requires a whole bunch of really complex database synchronization protocols, which are slow and heavyweight, um, based on the assumption that you may not lose anything ever. No, no, no. I think we're talking about two different things. I think, oh. maybe, right? I'm talking about consistency, availability, and partition avoidance, right? Okay. Pick any two of those, right? Okay. But consistency, so consistency is, is obvious anyway. I mean, if you read some of the recent, I'll send you, I'll, maybe I'll send by Rob a whole list of stuff I've been reading there. You know, 
eventual consistency, it's confusing now and it'll be confusing in the future. And so, and strong eventual consistency, you end up with these very limited amount of uh, data types or things you can do to your data under partitioning. So, you know, CAP as in, is, is CAP a valid model for a system of flow where time is fundamental and what we're trying to do is understand on the basis of flow. That is flow means an event happened now and what I want is a model of now. I don't want a model of which assumes that I may not lose anything ever. Actually, what I'd like to have is a model of right now. And if you're a little bit inaccurate because you dropped an event because of partitioning, who cares? What I want to see is your current state right now. Sure, but CAP is just, all CAP is doing is, is telling you which things you chose, right? Did, did I say I want availability and partition avoidance over consistency? Okay. Yeah, but, but okay, so let's talk about availability. <clears throat> so the whole notion of availability is about reading from a database when there is a partition, you know? Yeah, whatever, you know, the whole notion of event-based systems is they're updating you continuously about their changes in state. And so reading from a database is a silly idea. You don't do it. It doesn't have so, to, so when we built, like when we built our storage system, right, we, we've got, um, you know, clusters all over the planet, right? And someone's mm -hmm. gonna go upload a file into the US one. Yep. And, and that needs to show up on those other clusters. Yes. Right. Does it show up immediately? Probably not. How does the information get there? It's event-based. Right. And, and, you know, the question is, should I be able to avoid handle a network partition? In other words, I eventually get it there. Right. But, but I have to pick which ones I want. If I try and put it into you know, the old transactional model, if I can't update all my units, I don't update any of them. Right. Yeah. So am I going to so, pick that so, consistency over I'll get there eventually? I, I make those design decisions and all CAP does is make it clear to the consumers of that is what decisions we've made. Yeah. And, and you know, consistency in, in, I forget what the heck they use underneath these things. Right. But I mean, you know, they, they did some things to me that were like silly in, in the way they did it in that. Um, they chose to replicate every like, you know, create a directory, <laughs> delete a directory, move a file. Right, and they made that inconsistent, right. right? So so there wasn't even eventual consistency into it because at the end of the day, it was, you know, the, the eventual consistency was last rate wins, right? So one may have a file pointer, yeah, one right. may not have a file pointer, right? <laughs> and and yeah. so I, I just think of it as, as trying to say, when we design a system, we, we know we have choices and we have trade-offs to make, which ones are we gonna pick? Okay. And how the information- so I, I would there, add to true. that. So I think you're spot on, but I think the cap is all about databases. That is, it's, it's about representations of state that we want to persist. And it's not clear that in a flow-based system, you really get. I mean, there are some where you do and some where you may not. So for example, if you are learning to predict where my mobile device will be, do you really care? What you care about is that there is some model which is more or less current and you bite off into that some uncertainty vis-a-vis -vis the future in case I've managed to lose some events. But there isn't a database-centric model which is relevant to CAP. 
but I, was saying, I, I don't I don't equate cap with database. I mean, are, are the same decisions when I'm doing global traffic load balancing, right? Yeah. It, there's no database involved. There's some in-memory stores of, of state yeah. that need to be acted upon, but but I still have the same choices, right? So yeah. I, I just don't, okay. I, it may, maybe it fits in the database theorem and that kind of stuff, but it, it's the same thing. Anytime you start building globally distributed systems, you're just distributed systems. Mm -hmm. These are the trade-offs you need to make. Right. Yes. yes. No, I agree. I mean, there are trade-offs for sure. I mean, CAP was formulated in, in the context of databases, right? And right. so it's not clear to me that the original statements of what consistency means or availability or you know, whatever, <laughs> under partitioning is still relevant in the flow definition of an application. Maybe it's just a change in the definition of what consistency is or availability, right? That is, um, you know, what is the appropriate representation of state in a flow-based application? That's an interesting thing. And it's not, and you know, is consistency or is the original definition of consistency still valid? Anyway. Well, and I think that's the key is getting all the definitions for the specific uh, application or area of focus on the table first. Because it sounds like, like Simon and John are talking in some ways at cross odds because cross, yeah. cross well, it's not purposes, but it's like cross yeah. definitions because one's a database and one's a network. And so partition has a different de definition between the two. So the first thing to do, especially in these flow things, is get some of these basic definitions down so everybody's talking about the same thing. Maybe we should, yeah, I think you're right, Rocky. We should get James on the line. Well, we should make James write a short blog, which is the definition of things in a more traditional context, right? So flow is a, is the way forward, let's say. Get you to <laughs> redefine yeah. the core concepts. We need our data dictionary, our yeah. concept dictionary. That'd be cool. Uh, and so, you know, I wrote the book to get everybody thinking and talking. That's what's happening here. So, um, yeah, but the book you know, is yeah. go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the, um, I mean, that's that's the thing here, right? The reason it's a 10 year before the mainstream cares significantly about this um, is because even though the building blocks are there, this is very similar to when cloud just started popping up, right? Is that I think there's a, uh, there are a number of really interesting, exciting, innovative businesses and even business units uh, within enterprises that are doing very interesting things with events and event flows. Um, and it's really powerful. But the truth of the matter is, is that I can't even have a conversation with you about the interface because the interface doesn't exist, right? I mean, it may exist, but we haven't agreed on what it is. I can't have much of a conversation with you about the protocol, although I feel more comfortable in saying the metadata, you know, there's an somebody, there's somebody with an inside track on the metadata definition, but they, they don't, it's not guaranteed either because there's a tiny fraction of the world that's adopted it at this point. 
So um, there's a lot of opportunity for defining terms. We're going to have all the same stupid bullshit we had with with cloud and defining terms and trying to agree on what's paths and what's right. I mean, the similar kinds of arguments and discussions and debates that are going to come out of this. I'm talking to people who have um, really, really awesome, excellent ideas who are determined to keep their interfaces and protocols proprietary for as long as they can, because they see that as part of their business model. So we've got to overcome that to the, get it to the point where that's no longer valuable for them to do. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, so I think, you know, as long as we have, I, I hopefully with the term flow and flow architectures, hopefully with the idea of event-driven integration being cross-organizational, not just within an organization increasingly, those two kind of key elements will drive, give us a starting point from a language perspective to have debates about how it breaks down further. Um, I, I provide a guide based on what I know and what I can see today and what, what my conversations with experts lead me to believe is true uh, in the book. But uh, I'm also very, very clear that um, some, certainly the future looking stuff is very speculative and, and you could see things differently and that's good, that's okay. Um, that's, that's what I want to see out of it. That's, you know, maybe why, you know, I said early on why the reviews come in two ways They're, you know, either people are, you know, super into it and like, oh my God, this confirms everything I believe or, or, or wow, I got to explore this stuff more. Or you get people who go, there's nothing new here. It's very speculative, right? It's, it's probably too speculative. There's not enough ground uh, and, and foundation here. And, um, and I think, both are fair ways of looking at the book. <laughs> I think it is, you know, if you're looking for a well-grounded way of defining how you do event-driven integration across organizations, um, I, I give you the idea of what the technologies are that are out there today, but I don't really give you a solution for that problem because I think that it's, it's you're still going to have to do custom development because it's in a custom phase. There's not even products really to do it yet. Closest is Amazon with things like, you know, AWS with EventBridge, Azure with its event, um, its event hub. Um, those are the closest things because you can do some things cross organizational that are interesting there. But um, anyway, so that's that's, you know, it, it, it's it, this is like if somebody wrote a book about doing utility computing based on what they saw from AWS um, and maybe Google in two thousand nine. That's kind of where we are. That's a good time, summary. <laughs> yeah. James, thank you for uh, letting us put you on the spot and having an impromptu flow conversation. I didn't mean to hijack the conversation. I don't know what the topic I, was meant to be today. I feel terrible, but it was a great conversation. I really appreciate everybody's input and um, and and uh, and the and the struggle that the people are having with kind of really grasping the concept because um, that struggle is actually incredibly valuable. And I write, I, you know, it's my, my little tagline these days is I write to learn, you know, I write to be, if I'm proven wrong, I actually really appreciate that. <laughs> um, so it, it's good to hear people struggling because that's something that I can begin to explore myself. And, uh, you know, I have a blog now um, that I'm doing uh, uh, around the book. And, um, you know, the, those are the kinds of topics I'm looking to write about is, you know, either here's a problem and here's a solution, or here's something to think about that we need to solve in order to move this thing forward. Robert, I'm going to put you on the hook. <clears throat> yeah. You have to teach me about service measures. 
<laughs> oh god <laughs> i was assuming that's what we would end up talking about but uh i you know i think i understand them and they're they're squishy actually what i what i think is is that is that oh john knows about let's them. let's why don't we why don't we why don't we make that the topic for next week i i will uh, if we can the, find the other thing i'd like in. to point out on the service meshes i'm at, i think in the same boat and um uh, solo.io seems to be having lots of webinars on the topic. So it, it might be worth checking out to see what they have available. Um, Just to get up to speed. In fact, I think they're having kind of a service mesh 101 or something this week. I might be wrong. I, yeah, I mean, um, are you using service meshes, Rob? We do not. Okay. Um, we do not. We can talk. I mean, I can talk about it if you want to. We are right. Yeah. That'd be okay. awesome. I can talk about, that. I can talk about the, the shortcomings and the advantages. Let's, let's do it next week. We we were we actually had built one pre Kubernetes and then um, abandoned it. Um, they're incredibly hard. Yeah, incredibly hard. That'd be very useful. Well, I think it's what is useful about is is. Um, it goes into the topic about decomposition, right? Where things that used to be into the application framework or into the DevOps framework have been decomposed and moved. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think they're, they're rightfully so in, in where they've been moved to, but it does add a layer of complexity. And then there's a, another flavor to it, which is when you go into distributed systems, um, all the bits and pieces aren't there. You know, they, they really were intended initially for a single cluster. And so basically putting multiple service nets nodes together into a distributed system is still in the um, early days. All right, I think he just signed up, Rob. All right, good. As I gotta go grab some lunch, but um, it's Excellent. a pleasure and- uh, Thanks, James. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Really enjoy it. Talk to you guys later. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. If these are helpful, uh, these discussions are amazing. I learned so much and they're dynamic because people come and join and participate. Please join us at the 2030.cloud and uh, be part of these conversations. Bring your questions and ideas. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.